You're listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. Welcome everyone to Founders On Air. So today we're very lucky to have Guy Pearson here from Practice Ignition. He's the founder and CEO. Welcome, Guy. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So you've been busy traveling the world. You just closed a a $25 million round, which is uh, pretty exciting. So thanks for taking the time out to, to spend some time with us. And maybe start by telling everyone a little bit about, I guess, how you started as, a, as an entrepreneur and uh, how the journey started uh, many, many years ago. Yeah, for sure. So I'm an accountant by background, which is probably not perhaps the most entrepreneurial spirited career to kick off. But uh, the second firm I worked for, I sat next to uh, my partner as opposed to being sort of down in his own office. And we looked after some of the most entrepreneurial uh, families in the country. Okay. So founders of Flight Center, Junior Nowis, uh, the guys on the gun, and the list kind of went on. Um, and so I went from thinking everyone who in a suit and tie and jacket was successful to these guys who come into our offices and jeans and a t-shirt or flip-flops and yeah, knew how much they had achieved and what difference they'd made in the world and you know, all the foundations they'd set up, all those other things that come from, I guess, having that, that wealth and sort of thinking about how to give back and a little more involved there um, and started thinking, well, what's so different between me and that person? Um, and my boss pretty much encouraged me to put my hand up for any sense of opportunity that came along with the firm I was at. So I was helping with marketing, business development, uh, recruitment of grads. And by the time I was 23, I think I had my own team. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I was off in partnership by the time I was 20 at the end of that year. And then all that was, I guess, the genesis of, you know, I don't like this perhaps certain way of operating or I see an opportunity coming rather than whinging about it, just go have a crack at trying to do something about it. Um, so it all kind of genesis from there and the first venture was my accounting firm. Uh, I think when we met Steve many yeah, years ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the whole notion around that was if uh, the world's time cost but every software company is charging a fixed fee, you've got cloud technology coming in and none of my friends really like writing things on paper and don't really care about offices and want to do meetings in the same way we're doing this podcast, what is the future of the accounting industry look like for them? And given I had a bit of a systems bend in my background, first off, started with you know moving bricks and mortar businesses online with systems and then following through with bookkeeping, management, accounting, and tax. And that firm's called Interactive Accounting, still around today, and eventually moved its um, focus more over or was pulled more over into uh, high-growth Early stage startups, venture capital firms, uh, e-commerce, yeah, okay. sort of everything around that space. And so that's sort of, I guess, where it started. So having a boss who encouraged me to not just accept things the way they were, but if I was going to complain or suggest an alternative to follow it through, um, and kind of probably woke up something in me I didn't really know existed, and uh, off I went. Yeah, Stubborn excellent. Gen Y <laughs> millennial as a twenty-five-year-old, just thinking I could uh, have a crack at all these different ideas and, and try and make them work. Yeah. And guys, so, you know, you, you went into accounting. Was that sort of always your plan from early on in life before you became an entrepreneur? Yeah, I really like numbers and people. And, you know, I guess you, if you're good with numbers, you learn pretty early on that not everyone understands them. And if you can figure out how to communicate that, it's great. I like the idea of being able to help people. Um, so it was like numbers, people, and sort of the ability to help and very much accounting kind of hit home. Um, I had friends' dads who were accountants, all those sorts of things, and sort of thought what they were doing was um, interesting and cool and helpful. So I sort of went down that direction. I didn't realize how much of a compliance monkey I'd end up in the early days, but yeah, okay. there's obviously partners talk about all the cool stuff, right? 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Like valuations and and, uh, and restructures and all those sorts of things. And like, so how long were you doing so the accounting stuff before you sort of made that switch into to building practice ignition? So I was eighteen when I was first employed as an accountant. So between eighteen, actually sixteen. So full time work eighteen through twenty. I'll just be on that. Eighteen through, geez, trying to last twelve years. Yeah. Okay. Know? Okay. Um, it's about thirty. I came up with the idea. PI earlier than that, um, but didn't have money to move full time. Yeah, right. And so borrowed, had a loan, borrowed against that to build an MVP with two contractors based in Sydney, um, both both on engineering, and was sort of just slowly making that MVP work by just you know pulling money out. Now our, our accounting firm was different than most; we were high growth, so we were doubling revenue every year, and that costs a lot in terms yeah, of people yeah, and training yeah. and all those things. Yeah, so. Had no profits, so although everyone thinks accountants are wealthy, when you're actually growing a fast-growing accounting firm, you have zero money to play with. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was 2013 when I actually joined as an employee. Uh, ideation of practice mission was sort of into 2011, and in between was just you know trying to conjure how to build a software product. Uh, what does that look like? Who can we get on board to do it? How am I going to fund it? So very slowly, slowly. Yeah. Right. And so was it? So was it like a gradual shift from going from accounting into the building the software, or did you just one day just went straight straight to it? <laughs> yeah, I just didn't turn up one day. <laughs> um, you've met Lisa. She and my my business partners might have uh, had something negative to say if I'd just done that. So yeah, <laughs> we made the conscious decision at Interactive to move me out of the day to day. So my job was to build the business uh, systems, policies, procedures. Like, how do we actually grow an accounting firm? Um, and I did some advisory work for clients, but I wasn't in the day-to-day per se okay. on, on the okay. client delivery side. And you know, as the other business partners I brought in got more proficient in all the things that I, would, I was doing, we basically just brought them in more and more and more. When I asked them to join the firm, initially I told them that I wanted to do a software venture yeah, at okay. some point. Okay. And so no one was angry, pissed off or anything else. Literally, my, my exit was the easiest ever. I just stopped getting paid. <laughs> and... Not that it was a huge amount, but I yeah. stopped the paycheck yeah. and then moved over full-time, started getting paid out of the software company okay. and remain, uh, retained my directorship and my shareholding in the accounting firm. Yeah, cool. So awesome. it was, And kind of gave them free free reign. I just went to board meetings and tried to help out on certain things here and there. Yeah, um, awesome. And it's still sort of that relationship today. Okay. Yeah, cool. And and so for those who don't know, like tell us a little bit about Practice Ignition and so what it does and who's who's using it. Yeah, for sure. So uh, in various other industries, you've already had the transformation from bricks and mortar or manual systems of record and engagement. So the source of truth being the contract between two parties to the cloud. So e-commerce, so Shopify, you say SaaS and software businesses have things like Recurly or Stripe. Um, when you come to services, it doesn't really exist. There's no sort of recurring contract, but we have plenty of recurring services, um, things like uh, garbage collection, accounting fees. Uh, pool cleaners, anything yeah. you pay on a regular basis or you sign a service agreement. It's all disconnected. And so practice condition is designed to be that source of truth or that source of uh, engagement where it's a digital contract. It could be created online in a few minutes, has all your services that you're providing to your client, how you're going to bill, and payments is bundled in there as well. And the client can comment on the digital contract they receive. Uh, they can sign it without needing a separate signing up and it can be connected through to workflow invoicing them. And payments, as I've mentioned before. Yeah, the idea okay. being that what's in the contract is what your team connected and the workflow is deployed automatically based off what's in the contract. Invoicing is done automatically based on what the client's agreed upon and the payments are collected and reconciled in the same way. Yeah, um, okay. And then if you really want to have some fun, you can connect things like Zapier and extend it out. So if you want to have video welcomes or 
have a proper funny message into Slack every time you close a new client, all those sorts of things. Yeah, right. Ultimately, we view it as revenue and payments for services industries or Shopify for services. Okay. If you want to put a tagline on. Yeah, okay. Yeah, cool. Awesome. And so I guess basically if you're in one of those types of businesses, you're sending like an email's going out with a link or something like that where they're clicking on to then build that contract. Yeah. And you can get a short link for it straight out of the app. So if you wanted to send it via Messenger or WhatsApp or however it is you communicate with your clients, if it's not email, text message, whatnot. Uh, you can track who opens it, views it, comments, all those things are built in. Yeah, awesome. Um, but the coolest thing for me being an accountant is that if you're running a services business, you typically guess your revenue for the year based on the Excel spreadsheet and you know, identify when you might need more money. It's not actually tied to contracts typically. And so what we've done is effectively bubble up all the data for the contracts and you've got projected revenue, what service lines like, all that stuff in the ex-accountant, ex-accountant. That's what gets me excited. It's actually helping people better plan their business and better automate the client experience on the other side. Yeah, awesome. So you've raised a bit of money since since you started? Yep. Can you share how much you've raised uh, from the beginning? Or how many rounds have you done? We've done way too many. <laughs> Look, I think we're up to five rounds. So we had our family, friends and fools round, which is 110,000, an angel round, uh, which was joined by Craig Winkler on the back end, okay. um, which was kind of a, a blessing. Yeah, cool. Sorry. And how did you get Craig on board in the beginning? So Craig is a very private guy. And obviously being reasonably respectful of that, but I still had to sort of hustle to find him and, and figure out a way to get his attention. So okay. um, we were at ZeroCon in Sydney in 2013, maybe. Um, Zero's big annual t- uh, accounting tech conference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Craig was on the board. I knew he'd be there and literally just kept in my mind that if I saw him, I'd ask him to come to my talk. Yeah, awesome. Uh, which I was giving. And I happened to see him beginning of day one, walking through the exhibit hall, introduced myself, said I was a huge fan. I loved everything about him and what he does. You know, probably a little bit knowing him now, but a little bit too complimentary. <laughs> and then I asked him once my talk. He put it in his calendar whilst he was there and he came along and he was sitting there at the back. Thankfully, Zero gave me a room that was probably a little bit too small. So there was a line out the door um, with people trying to hear me speak. Yeah, awesome. And then uh, we did a sound which was led by uh, Adrian DeMarco from Tech One. And our Series A uh, was led by EVP, but we ended up with EVP, right click, uh, Capital, Black Sheep Capital, and one other VC fund that's a corporate that doesn't want to be named. And okay. uh, Craig followed on in every single round. And then we just closed our B round, which we announced last weekend. That was led by Tiger Global out of New York, uh, yeah, but awesome. with an Aussie partner. So we don't have to change location, don't have to do board meetings overseas. Yeah, right. It's kind of business as usual for us, but with, with that power. Total race to date, um, Aussie is about. 35 million. Um, the largest chunk of that just came in. Yeah, right. So awesome. 20, 26, 26 in one hit. So we were incredibly lean. Yeah. We were break even and profitable up until uh, before with the round close. So about that time frame. Okay. And so we kind of got to the promised land and then realized that we only had 0.2% of the market of that 0.2% that we had. There was only, let's call it 25% activation. So it was still an amazing amount of expansion for customers. We did have let alone the rest of the market, just in bookkeeping and accounting. Yeah, right. So we were like, let's rather than... So Craig was great, actually. I, I went, flew down to Melbourne, had a meeting with him. It was like, should we raise or should we go profitable? Or should we look at debt? You know, how should we look at this? And he basically sat there and you know, knowing our business, knowing me, knowing our unit economics, was like, if you, Guy, you're an investor, you've invested in 10 startups. If you're, one of your portfolio companies was coming to you, with the same data, the same information, what would you say to them? And I was like, I'd tell them that they go raise capital and throw more money in the tank because there shouldn't 
really, you can always stuff everything up. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything, all the indicators are like this business just needs more capital to grow. So, so guy, you've been at it what about eight years now? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's call it eight. I always say six because I wasn't an employee before then, but um, and we hired our first team member. Okay. At the same time, but eight, eight is fine from ideation. And so. Six to eight years um, down the track, you've raised thirty-five million. Um, how big is your team now, and what was it like, sort of early on? If you can sort of rewind the clock back, to, you know, year one, year two, and sort of share some of those early stories. Yeah, for sure. The team is sorry. We keep hiring people now, which is a good problem to have. Um, <laughs> let's just call it sixty at the moment. Our aim is to sort of get to eighty to ninety by the end of the calendar year. But if we rewind back, yeah. <laughs> Some funny stories. I basically had the three amigos. So it was myself, uh, Dane Thomas, who's my co-founder. Uh, he joined uh, a little bit later on after the MVP, but he just left deputy as their product lead, lead product person. So I was really thankful to be having him on board. And then and Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Fan, who's one of our original developers. It was just a really fun, lean time, but also scary being an accountant and watching the money go out the door. Yeah. Um, Things, things that we learned, like don't let guy do sales. And so we hired someone else to do that. And not because I can't sell, but being an accountant selling to accountants, I get frustrated at their reasons why they wouldn't sign up or why they said they couldn't change their process or that this wouldn't work for an accounting firm. And I'd be like, well, my firm over there might be a little bit bigger than yours and it does work. But, you know, all those sorts of things. So I think the story we've got in terms of scrappiness, we were 2014, we probably had seven people we sort of reached into the US so we have one person on the ground there and we'd been used to and probably spoiled events that were put on by say zero equipments into the accounting tech sphere and then we went to our first non-vendor based accounting event in the US which was called Scaling New Heights and you know they had an artist for design or anything else and we just thought that the stand would be plain and have our logo across the top and it was in a hotel ballroom with dingy dark blue draping we had no design no collateral they told us there'd be a screen there was a 15 inch flat panel crt (laughs) this big i'm like okay how do we fix this and so you know we're hustling getting over to the uh what's called uh fedex got a banner printed that same day and then we're like okay we need a screen because it's really hard to explain a software product when you can't show it without brochures and collateral we were very anti-printing stuff back in the day and so we went back to the Airbnb that we rented. So it was three of us. And before the conference kicked off, we carried the TV in and being snobby, practice ignition, Aussie-based company people, we stopped into the coffee shop that we'd stopped into the day before and found good coffee. And so this lady laughed at us because it looks like we're stealing a TV. <laughs> and they were not light back then. So they were still, you know, 20 kilos of uh, flat panel. And she just thought the story was hilarious. And yeah, basically, we, we go back every day and have a laugh with her. And so we get this TV to the hotel. The guy at the hotel comes out with the trolley, puts a blanket over the not supposed to bring in external ID equipment. We wheel it in, put it up on the screen. On the way back, I degrees, they're all sweating, uh, trying to carry this TV. And we stop back in at this, at this coffee shop. The lady's laughing and she's looking at the team. She's like, actually, which Airbnb are you guys renting? I'm like, oh, it's around the corner. It's a loft. It's this, that, that, that. She's like, that's my Airbnb. That's my TV. <laughs> and she just started cracking up laughing. <laughs> she was such a good sport. She was like, well, if you break it, let me know because it's insured and I probably need a new one. But if you don't, please don't put any scratches or anything. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to say that she was, she was your next. Star review. 
no five-star review on the Airbnb. <laughs> like everything was all good, but it was super funny because it was like she'd seen this every day, been talking to us about the conference and everything else, and then it turned out to be hers. Um, and we're like, we haven't trashed your house. Like everything's <laughs> fine. Come and have a look if you want. <laughs> so it's probably like the you know the rentals of the TVs in American hotels for trade shows. It was something like twelve hundred dollars a day. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I think in total we might have had sixty thousand dollars in the bank at that point. So spending <laughs> you know five percent of it to hire a TV wasn't really something no. we were prepared to do. Yeah, but that same conference, like uh, I met the founders of HubDoc, who I became an investor in it eventually and exited and I bought to zero. So like that conference was kind of a uh, probably the beginning of the we can make this happen in, in the US and Canada. And just the fact that we ended up with a scrappy borrow a, borrow a TV story from Airbnb, kind of just icing on the cake for that. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. And so that's a great story. I was going to say, uh, you know, did, did, did she, did she uh, decide to invest in your round? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, stranger uh, things yeah, have happened. I think she was like, if, yeah, she's, um, I think she was probably like, if these guys are stealing TVs. The company probably isn't going to last very long. <laughs> also, right. it's a coffee shop. I'm not sure how much coffee shop coffee shop owners have in terms of. Uh, free cash flow to invest in a long-term debt <laughs> company. So um, that's a great story. So I guess at what point, was there a point that looking back that you realized that customers actually wanted the product that you had built and you sort of knew you were onto a good thing? So basically when we had, so to answer the question, when we had customers bringing peers up to demonstrate how to do practice and you should know how to use it on the stand and yeah, almost not quite yelling obscenities, but very much telling them they were a fool if they weren't going to sign up today and start using it. As that started happening and then the reviews kind of started piling up online, that was kind of the, the, okay, we've got something here. And that was probably, you know, 13, 14, 15 during that time period when we were still very small. Yeah, awesome. Sort of three years in, four years in. Yeah. And then, you know, post that, I guess, probably, you know, like the, the Craig coming on board moment was kind of huge for us. And then closing out the Series A in terms of just finally getting two years runway to be able to build a company was, um, was kind of monumental. And the huge part of that was actually the amount of work the investors did on the customers and due diligence and churn raisings and all those sorts of things. And um, it was, you know, the stuff that they shared with us was kind of amazing because they're like, we've never analyzed a complete churn, churn cohort. Had so many people who churned say they were coming back and it was more just a timing thing. So yeah, right. I think we realized we hadn't done so already. We'd realized we'd found something that changes the way people's businesses run and when they get locked in. It's life-changing for both them and obviously the clients of their firm because they spend more time on them rather than chasing money from them. Yeah, awesome. And so that was uh, all those things kind of added up. And then since then, it's been, you know, like I, I get hugs um, way more now than I did as an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> when I go to some of these events or just bump into people and they're like, particularly also in the time cost centric, you move to fixed fee. So um, we had a few bookkeepers where, you know, no one really wants to do their books over Christmas. And so every year it was like a struggle to put you know, stuff under the Christmas tree or they'd have to go into debt and then sort of try and make it up in February. And so the amount of hugs I've had from uh, particularly bookkeepers who come up and said, I can finally afford to buy my kids Christmas presents or I can finally afford to do this so I don't get stressed out or don't take out a loan every January. Yeah, awesome. Uh, it's it kind of like hits home and you're changing people's lives. And so with that, you know, I guess there was times when you were sort of building the company. Was there moments where you thought, oh, this isn't going to work? And what was that like if it, if it did? Oh, happen? yeah. <laughs> Heaps. I mean, the biggest moment, I call it a breakdown, but very much kind of just felt like the weight of the world was on me. Yeah. Um, I think it was about 14, 
on the end of 13 maybe. So like we, we'd had some runs, we hadn't had an amazing amount of success, like you know, monumental, but we were, we were tracking the right direction and just found like every door that we were trying to turn to was a no. And, and so was that. There was some stuff that went on at the accounting firm, so it's a bit of, so it's now been rectified. We've had the leadership changes and things, but like everything just seemed to be crashing down all at once. Not crashing is probably the wrong word to use, but it just felt like that. Yeah. And so I was with my my family. So my mom and my brother at my brother's place in Canberra, out on the lawn, literally like breaking down in tears, going, I don't know how I'm going to keep all this afloat. And, you know, to have your mother and your brother both sort of put their hands up. And I come from a middle-class family, but not an insanely wealthy one. And they're both like, well, how much do you think you need? And do you think you can make this work? And so they backed me or helped me keep the company alive until we got to the next round. Yeah, right. And all those sorts of things. So definitely um, a lot of moments like that. Almost every round except for this last one, I've had to borrow money from the family to make payroll whilst due diligence or lawyers were being lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. Never, uh, word for the wise, never, if anyone ever says they're closed in six weeks, just, <laughs> just don't believe that. It's six months end to end as a minimum. You should allow for that. Yeah. And never take one year's capital. Take two. I don't care if it's more dilutionary. Yeah, um, right. You'll come out the other side with a multiple X increase in value. We tend to hop skip every year from like what well, we closed the last round out, add less than 100% and then dilute again. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. really bad, really, really bad scenario to get into. So if you can avoid that, um, make sure you do. Yeah, awesome. And what's it like now with 25 mil in the bank? <laughs> yeah, one of the most rewarding things we've been able to do in the last two rounds is actually buy back some early stage shareholders. Okay. So, yeah, not all of that ended up in uh, in the company. Okay, but the the amount that did is still yeah mind boggling. Yeah, being an accountant, my first question is or was you know where can I find a term deposit for yes. a year that's six percent? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and at the moment, that's kind of impossible, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's just not you know, non-existent. Uh, ironically, I don't think it's worth the risk, but South Africa has ten percent term deposit. <laughs> um, but but I feel like the currency exchange rate could uh, yep. wipe that out, so it's probably not worth it. Yeah, just relief. Like it's it's funny. It's you're not worried about making payroll anytime soon. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, the second part is how do I go and achieve you know what we set out in the forecast? And yeah, like I said, uh, closing always takes longer than you expected, and so yeah, we had the money landing three months before it did. And so trying to catch up on things like forecasts, forecast targets, expectations, yeah. redoing goals, all those things to try and make it all you know, feasible. Uh, so that's sort of where we're at, at the moment. Uh, but ultimately, uh, that inner encounter in me saw the bank balance on the day the first big tranche of funds dropped and a uh, big smile across my face and screenshot that one because I <laughs> see that many zeros yeah, exactly. again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. And um, so, like in, in terms of how you've got to scale, um, obviously you're at, you're at some level of scale now, and you know there's probably lots more that you're going to get over the next years to come. What was it? Sort of, how did you get that sort of initial scale, or what did you sort of find that sort of helped you get faster growth as the as the company evolved? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the biggest things was having a really good, it's going to sound ironic, finance function, but more so data and finance. So, what were we doing that worked? What were we doing that didn't work? So you might call it product analysis, business analysis, but if you don't tie it back to sort of revenue and team and divisions and all those things, so it all just kind of needs to be there. If I was to give advice to anyone else, I'd be like, try and put in a product analyst, a business analyst, and a CFO earlier if you can, because you'll get so much insight on what actually works for your company rather than going on. Yeah, okay. So looking back, Guy, you know, um, you mentioned about sort of the data and analytics piece of the business being sort of critical, but was there something that you guys built or, or did 
um, that you sort of look back now and say, well, that was a critical factor in, in your success to date? Yeah. So the idea to build in like a white label payment solution. So to sort of complete the loop rather than, um, so when someone signs a digital contract through practice initiation, they can also put their direct debit or credit card details down. We had the option to partner with people, which I mean, you know, they pop off into a separate window and you know, do it that way historically. And we decided that we'd do the extra work to sort of build a white label effectively experience. And, and that's been probably one of the biggest, I guess, levers for us in terms of growth and completing the progress, uh, process of collecting that payment. But from a customer experience point of view, we get an insanely high adoption rate of people accepting contracts and payments turn on. Yeah, right. Services was one of the biggest things that people thought wouldn't happen. Yeah, and awesome. one of the reasons we have so many fans today. So that one and then the uh, the business dashboards so the metrics, being able to present to a firm like where are you going, those two things, probably two of the top-down sort of strategic decisions that we made that really made a difference. It's amazing. And so keeping them in your platform and then sort of providing that dashboard. So we've probably got quite a few SaaS, founders of SaaS businesses listening in. What metrics or what KPIs would you sort of advise them to always monitor? What, what do you think is key for a business like yours? I think LTV CAC is, is probably the most important. It, it very much spells out whether or not you know, you've got a long-term profitable business and, and that you can scale it. The only caveat to that is early on, it's really hard to have a, have a good handle on that because yeah. you haven't had customers for a long time. So growth rate of existing customers, both in usage and, and revenue, is probably another. And then payback periods. So if you're going to spend money on marketing, be damn sure that you understand how quickly you make that money back and make sure that's less than 12 months if you can. And I think the thing that we're learning more and more is that the more people live within your product where possible without sort of holding them captive, the more likely you are to have a lower churn rate. And so I think the, the churn generally, if you can keep churn as low as possible, it's your, your gateway through to A, understanding your customers if you keep them engaged, but B, you know, if you can keep a recurring business customer for longer, you can afford to pay for more things. So churn is, is the killer of all businesses. Yeah. So keeping that rate low, whatever it sort of takes, is probably a key thing. And I think other piece of advice, don't ever be afraid to change prices. Make sure you think about it before you do it. But um, get back to a conversation I had with you, Steve, many, many years ago. <laughs> we had a freemium product. And after, I don't know, I think we had a couple of beers, I think, in that yeah. conversation. Yeah. And you basically told me like I was an idiot for not charging $29 a month for the base plan. And my biggest fear was churn um, because we had a freemium up to, I think it was 10 or 15, 20 clients. So we changed to $29. I got emails from customers actually thanking me for starting to charge them so that they would actually use the product. Yeah, right. And I, and I just like was ready to run myself into a brick wall. It's like we've been lamenting over this for six months and we could have been charging from day one. Yeah, right. It sounds like Steve gave you some pretty good advice early on there. I <laughs> oh, he did. He's, uh, he's always been a good one for sage advice. He's good and, uh, and, and calming, calming beer. What, um, <laughs> I was going to ask, what, what's the best piece of advice that you've, you've been given along the journey? I'm assuming you've had mentors and advisors along the way. Um, maybe share a bit of, bit of that um, piece of the business. Yeah. I've been really lucky. Some of my best mates was at uh, early on at Atlassian, early on at Twitter, um, now runs his own company in Wollongong called Easy Agile. And so Nick's always been just incredibly open in terms of feedback from what happens at a larger company. So it's always good. Like, yeah, I would always tell him I didn't have the money to pay for that. But hearing like how big companies operated and being invited to some of their functions was hugely advantageous in terms of where we were headed. And then the other ones were uh, mostly mentors or even some of our board members basically telling me to stop asking for permission and just go out and do it. I think the that attitude, you know, I'm an accountant, so I always have a, a measure of opportunity cost. 
always have a measure of, you know, maybe not so, so aggressive. That little push here and there kind of just made me go out and go get shit done effectively. And yeah, awesome. as a result, the business grew as opposed to waiting for due process or don't wait for the board meeting. Like, you know, here's the, they sort of, you know, yeah, board would just give me swim lanes and be like, here's this, go get it done if you can. Don't ask, you know, we'll see you next board meeting. Let's find out how it went. Yeah, um, cool. And I think obviously early stage, that's that's incredible as we get a bit bigger. It's it's more about similar thing, but more towards hiring. And one thing you can't hire is culture. Yeah. So, you know, I wear jeans and a t-shirt. I haven't changed my dress since in 10 years. That's no disrespect to anyone else who dresses any different. But if you're not, <laughs> if you're a suit wearing person who wants, you know, all the things and the pride that comes with perhaps some of that mentality, wants to be like RV what's his name from suits like that's not really how our company runs and so we very much need people who are smart humble and driven we can't replace that it doesn't mean that they're all the same we have quirky people from all walks of life so we very much think about you know when when trying to think about what happens next you can't sort of train some of those elements it's always focused on hiring on culture yeah cool and you spoke a little bit there about your board like how big is your board now it's getting bigger we have um probably a world record number of board observers so everyone that's back just kind of has someone that sits in there okay and that's now changed and it's now up to us they added a hell of a lot of value so we're keen to sort of try and keep them along but our board is just grown from three people to five people officially okay but we had an additional three board observers and then the board meetings were cfo as well so like yeah we didn't have a very big boardroom and it definitely felt fine most of the time until our board meetings i got kind of overcrowded yeah right but it's a pretty pretty balanced board i guess um so we've got myself and dame my co-founder we've got tiger i have a board seat okay and then we've got uh two of our existing investors who led the last two rounds before that yeah, cool. on the board cool. but yeah it's very much a um let's just push forward and, and go kind of set up and then obviously just held accountable all there for council yeah. on on anything that needs to be discussed or decided on at the board level yeah cool and are you doing monthly or quarterly board meetings quarterly quarterly oh. you can't get anything done in a month yeah we started off at every six weeks and then we just realized that by the time we finished the board pack yeah and then we tried to do stuff like we probably had only made two weeks progress on whatever it was that we were supposed to get done by the next board meeting yeah. so we, we moved the cadence out to quarterly so we could actually have a quarter to deliver yeah, cool. And like in choosing your board members, was it all based on investors that we're putting in? Did you get any? Yeah. Think about any anyone independent, or you didn't really need to? Not as yet. But basically, all board members. I think early stage tends to be dictated by who who puts the most money into the yeah. last round. Yeah. We have considered having an independent chairman at certain times. Yeah. But at the moment, that is not the case. Yeah. It's something we'll look to do later on. That brings me to my final question. Like, what do you see as the plan for practice ignition over the, like, the next five years? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, we've just taken on a fair bit of investment. So we're not short on cash in any time in the near future, particularly yeah. coming from a break-even position. Yeah. Obviously, you can spend that like the fire festival, but yes. that's not our plan. <laughs> so we're very much focused on just trying to build the best company we can, take great care of our customers and really build the volume of the relationships that we manage between accountants and their clients and help to perhaps further improve how that relationship is actually managed. In terms of the future of the company, we're going to dramatically increase our headcount in all divisions and all regions that we actually have customers and actually start to open a few more offices as well and really gets back to being what's called entrepreneurial. So we'll always listen to our customers and put what they want first in terms of how we think about what we build next. Yeah, But we really want to bring back some of the, uh, what's called the Steve Jobs X stuff, where we actually start to think from a top-down approach. So, you know, 
here's something you never knew that you always wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And start to deliver some stuff that kind of makes it a bit of a game changer. And the company itself, I'd love to see it get back to break even and profitability again. But ultimately, yeah, we, one of the reasons we took on Tiger was A, they pitched us in terms of what they saw the future of the company from what we could be and the problems that we solved, which was amazing. Yeah, cool. And secondly, they were bullish, so it didn't take them long to issue, issue us a term sheet. Thirdly, one of the, the directors joined our board as actually a client of one of our customers. Okay. So I didn't have to explain how the product works terribly yeah, awesome. much. And then lastly, they have a track record of helping build very, very large transformational companies for various industries or horizontals. And so for us, it was, it was getting the people on board who can back us now and if we you know, deliver back us in the future uh, to whatever end uh, achieves the greatest outcome for all the stakeholders and our customers. Yeah, awesome. And just um, finally, like, office, where, where are your offices now? You're in, obviously in Sydney and Australia and where else? Yep, so we've got Sydney. We've got a small office in Brisbane, which is growing. Okay. Um, we have a team about to launch into Toronto in Canada. I've got Kelowna in Canada, okay. which is kind of like uh, Queenstown of Canada. It's pretty amazing. It's where Hootsuite started. It's where Disney Games is based. Yeah, cool. Um, so really cool little tech hub. I've got Seattle. We have a small strategic office there in London. In the UK, and uh, I've got some uh, two offices in the Philippines, which have a few people in each. So that's in Clark, and oh, how did I have a mind blank on that one? Alabang, which okay. is just south of Manila. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, that's where we're located, and we're hiring like across the board. <laughs> so if you're listening to this and you're not <laughs> a founder, have a look at the job board. I think it's uh, practicemission.com forward slash careers. And what sort of areas? It literally for everything: <laughs> marketing, sales, products engineering, customer success, account management, retention, yeah, uh, ops, like I literally say across the company, the upside and downside of being a cash flow break-even and profitability sort of break-even as well was that we weren't hiring masses. Yeah. And so our existing team got stretched for quite a while. So yeah, we have the funding and literally everywhere needs help. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, we're just looking forward to being on great people who, who jump in for the culture and help us uh, get to our, where we need to be and best help our customers and stakeholders. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for joining us on Founders on Air today, Guy, and uh, congratulations on the huge success you've had to date and uh, really excited to watch your journey unfold over the years ahead. It's really been great hearing your story and um, I'm sure you've inspired other founders and perhaps some other accountants listening to have a go. So over the coming weeks, we'll be bringing you more terrific founders who have real and actionable insights to share. Coming up in October, we've got Holly Cardu friend of ours and founder of Pixie. But wait, there's more. We're also excited to announce that Gabby Leibovich, founder of Catch Group, who recently exited to West Farmers for $230 million, will be joining us in the next little while. Excellent. And thanks, Guy. I appreciate you taking the time out to, um, to, list, to join us today. And uh, for those uh, listening, you can subscribe on the Apple Podcast, Spotify, and uh, through our website on foundersonair.com. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. A podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.